0: In parts one through five of this episode, we began to take time out to debunk and correct an internet article entitled, Why Jesus Wouldn't Cut It as a Pastor in Today's Evangelical Mega Churches. We dismiss this title as a classic example of faulty logic and an incorrect worldview. We also began to debunk and dismiss the various logical fallacies in the article itself. In order to understand this episode and the context of the remaining portions of this podcast and its episodes, it will be necessary, if you have not already, to listen to and be familiar with the preceding episodes and their content in order to move forward with contextual discernment. At the end of part five, we were addressing this author's comments and his apparent confusion regarding Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. In this episode, we continue with this discussion since the author has additional comments on the subject which require proper biblical exegesis to correct. The author quotes from John the following, quote, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth." The author continues with this statement, "...worship in the Spirit and in truth is not about a book, let alone salvation through correct ideas or tradition. For people who call Jesus the Son of God, you think they would also reject the veneration of the book he's trapped in and church dogma that has crucified him again each time a gay man or divorced couple are refused the sacraments, unquote. Notice first that Jesus says, quote, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship that you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Unquote. Excuse me, quote, salvation is of the Jews. Unquote. What? How can this be? I thought that according to the author, Jesus was here definitively, quote, attacking the preeminence of religion, tradition, dogma, and group identity, offering an entirely new way of looking at spirituality by emphasizing basic human dignity above nation, state, gender, or religion, unquote. How does Jesus proclaiming that, quote, salvation is of the Jews, unquote, demonstrate empathy for atheists and secular humanists who deny that God exists or that salvation is even necessary. Notice, too, that Jesus says, quote, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, unquote. Wow, that does not sound empathetic. If anything, that sounds kind of arrogant, presumptuous, and judgmental of Jesus. Who does Jesus think he is here, God? If Jesus is this all-inclusive humanist who want everyone to feel equal and no one to be an quote-unquote other, then Jesus should not be sounding critical here. He should be complimenting the woman on doing her best, trying hard, and worshiping at all, regardless of where, what, or who she is worshiping. Instead, Jesus effectively tells her that all Samaritans are wrong in their worship. Then the author gives us his Mount Everest pinnacle of heretical theology, saying, quote, Worship in the Spirit and in the Truth is not about a book, let alone, quote-unquote, salvation through correct ideas or tradition. For people who call Jesus, quote, the Son of God, unquote, you'd think they would also reject the veneration of the book he's trapped in and church dogma that has crucified him again each time a gay man or divorced couple are refused the sacraments, unquote. Here again, the author attempts to pit the straw man Jesus created by atheists and secular humanists and himself against the Bible, i.e. God's Word. Again, I have to point out that if it were not for God's Word, the Bible, the author would not have this account of what happened between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. As a result, if there were no quote-unquote book, there would be no way for the author to draw his incorrect assumptions about what Jesus is saying. Yet, the author uses the quote-unquote book he so disdains to build the Jesus of his liking, and then proceeds to tell us all that truly following Jesus means discarding the book he used to create Jesus. This is truly circular reasoning at its best. Let's recall that we are not talking about a generic quote-unquote book. We are not talking about any group of pieces of paper bound between two covers. We are talking about the Word of God Himself, breathed and inspired by His Spirit to the various writers who were moved to write what they wrote. God declares in His Word in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, Quote, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart." In Psalm 119, verse 105, we read, "...Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path." In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read, quote, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Unquote. So the problem is that in order to correctly worship, Fallen man requires the Word of God which reveals the nature, character, and attributes of who God is, our relationship to Him, and how we go about establishing a right relationship with Him so that we are able to worship and honor Him correctly. Without God's Word and revelation... We remain lost and separated from God by sin and rebellion. Without God's word, none of us have any idea of who God truly is. We have no idea what his character and attributes are. We have no idea who, how, what, or why we worship. If left to our own devices without God's word, we are doomed to never to know what God, Jesus, or salvation mean. Thus, when the Bible is talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth, there are two things which are critical. One, truth. If we are going to worship or do anything else according to truth then it follows that we need to have an ultimate source of authority by which we could measure whether or not we are in fact worshipping according to that truth. The Bible, God's Word, is that ultimate source of authority. If not, then we are right back to either no truth whatsoever anywhere, period, or we are using relative subjective opinions, consensus, whims, and percentage according to what man sees as truth, for the moment, in his own eyes. 2. SPIRIT Worshipping in spirit means that the true worship, according to the Bible, is not any series of mere outward works, deeds, or behaviors, no matter how well executed, how sincere, or how well-intentioned they may be. True worship in spirit is only made possible as God draws and calls the believer to repentance of dead works, self-merit, self-righteousness, and inherent inability on our part to ever please God based on what we can do by our own nature. By virtue of God's grace, we are given a new nature via faith in Jesus' finished work and imputed righteousness to exercise sincere and meaningful worship and honor coupled with knowledge discernment and truth of who god is in this context quote unquote correct ideas of who god is who jesus is who we are worship et al are all critical they are not our ideas They are God's revelation given within the ultimate authority of His Word, the Bible. When we say, quote-unquote, correct ideas, it is important to remember that we are not implying, quote-unquote, perfect ideas. Because while we, as Christians, are justified and seen as perfect while we abide in Christ we are nonetheless having our conditionally imperfect nature being progressively sanctified through a continued relationship of an obedience to Jesus and his word, the Bible. Now, the author is correct in saying that true biblical worship is not about earthly human traditions, no matter how old or or how venerated they may be. But anyone, including the church, atheist, secular humanist, or this author, can be guilty of adhering themselves knowingly or unknowingly to tradition. Tradition is really nothing more than a variant of personal preference or bias about something, which then eventually becomes the assumed norm, reality, or truth of a particular thing. Human nature is such that we become comfortable with such assumptions, and we increasingly build our lives and worldviews around such assumptions. The dilemma here is that the author has committed the error of false equivocation by reading his worldview assumptions into selective texts of the Bible and then using his eisegetical interpretations to dismiss the remaining portions of the Bible which disagree with his worldview. In practice, since the Bible is the ultimate source of authority then we who are truly Christians should be committed to the Bible defining and shaping our worldview and not the other way around. Because the author has forced his worldview to interpret the Bible, he then uses his interpretation to dismiss the Bible he has interpreted. This interpretation comes full circle to cause the author to conclude quote, for people who call Jesus the Son of God, you think they would also reject the veneration of the book he's trapped in and the church dogma that has crucified him again each time a gay man or divorced couple are refused the sacraments, unquote. Here again, Christians do not, quote, venerate a book, unquote, Christians venerate the Word of God. Christians venerate the ultimate source of authority. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega who spoke and created the universe into existence. God's Word, the Bible, is about the person of His Son, Jesus, His redemptive plan of salvation and our relationship to Him from cover to cover. In both Psalm chapter 40 verse 7 and Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7, God's Word in referring to the person of Jesus the Christ says this: quote, "Then said I, "Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me." Unquote. So Jesus is not, quote unquote, "trapped anywhere. Jesus is certainly not trapped in the Word, i.e. the Bible, which He inspired and authored via the Holy Spirit to declare Him to mankind. God's Word, the Bible, is not a trap, but is instead an inexhaustible source of truth and wisdom giving direction, inspiration, life, and power to those whom God's Spirit brings it to life via his grace. It has been well said that the Bible is not simply another quote-unquote book, another piece of literature sitting on the shelf. The Bible is God's basic instructions before leaving earth. Nevertheless, for those who wish to question whether the Bible is God's word, Whether it is reliable or not, whether it can be believed or not, I would direct those interested to the episode entitled The Bible, A Message from God to Man. Therein you will find the necessary basic information and evidence to demonstrate that the Bible is historically believable, trustworthy, and reliable as the inspired Word of God. Next, we have the author's belief that Jesus is, quote, crucified again each time a gay man or divorced couple are refused the sacraments, unquote. Now, first, I would like to ask the author to clarify by asking, are you admitting for the record that Jesus was a historical person who lived, had a ministry as detailed in the Gospels, was tried, was crucified, and died? If not, then your statement and belief is completely false because whatever any individual or church does or doesn't do to anyone could never affect Jesus if he did not exist or he was not historically crucified as detailed in the Bible. Second, I would like to ask the author to clarify, are you willing to admit for the record that Jesus rose again from the dead after being crucified and therefore he is God? If so, then why are you still calling yourself an atheist? If he is God, surely he would have used his powers to completely destroy the Old Testament if he thought that they were so incorrect as you seem to assert. Further, he would have given specific instructions to his disciples not to write the New Testament since so much of that is counterproductive according to the author. On the other hand, if Jesus is not God, which is what I suspect the author ultimately believes, then why would anyone in any church be worried about some human who was crucified 2,000 years ago? I mean, the Romans crucified like hundreds of people, if not thousands of people. If we had a list of their names, then how and why would what we do today matter regarding any of their crucifixions 2,000 years ago? They were all humans, including Jesus. Then why are we not measuring what we do or don't do against the other people who were crucified? Unfortunately for the author, the only way that what we do or don't do today matters regarding Jesus' crucifixion is if not only was Jesus crucified, but more importantly, Jesus rose again from the dead because he is God. Well, now that we have established that Jesus is God and that the Bible is his word, we can also say that whatever things that the Bible establishes as his sacraments are in fact his sacraments. If we are talking about God's sacrament, whatever it may be, then when we want to know who, what, why, when, which, if, or anything else surrounding said sacrament, we must go to the ultimate source of authority to know the truthful answer and not man's opinion. If God's word permits, allows, encourages, commands, instructs, or directs a particular person and qualifies them to engage in a particular sacrament, then we, who are likewise are qualified as God's people, have the duty to facilitate, perform, and encourage that. If we fail to do so, we are disobeying God or minimally failing to be faithful as his stewards. On the other hand, if God's word prohibits, disqualifies, warns, admonishes, or commands any person from participating in any given sacrament, then we who are God's people are not at liberty to argue or disagree with God. The only way we are in fact God's people is when we obey and honor God. More importantly, the qualification or disqualification is always for a purpose and reason, whereas the author would like to hint that the reason for any and perhaps every disqualification is one of prejudice, hate, bigotry, intolerance, bias, tradition, etc. often the reason is grounded in the reality that those who truly know God's word have a relationship with Jesus and who exercise discernment thereby can observe fruits or lack thereof which give testimony that the person in question does or does not qualify, according to God's word, to participate in any given sacrament. This is not meant to say that even true believers are not capable of error. They are. But the fact that one person, or even an entire church, may be in error, does not mean that the entire church everywhere is in error or has lost authority. In the author's example, he listed two examples which are apparently critical in his mind. Let's look at the two and apply what we know thus far. In the first example, the author states that when a church denies a gay man the sacraments, that church crucifies Jesus again. Okay, well, the first question is, What does God's Word, the ultimate authority, say about homosexuality? The answer is that God's Word clearly states that homosexuality is one of many sins. You can say what you want about the quote-unquote love angle, But the reality is that I seriously doubt that any two men or any two women have decided to get together because they hated each other on a regular basis. You can deny the Bible if you like, but that is what it says. You can attempt to change the Bible, but then you no longer concede to the Bible as ultimate authority and everything is now relative. Now, let's be clear homosexuality is no different from any other sin. We are all born with sin. The issue is that if God is truly drawing and calling us to repentance, as stated before, we should and will be given a new nature whereby we are moved to repent, to change, and to be transformed if we continue to sin and to remain steadfastly stubborn, refusing to relinquish our old nature, then we demonstrate a heart of rebellion. In the end, stubborn, prideful rebellion and refusing to acknowledge God, to repent and to be conformed to obedience demonstrates a clear prohibition to God's sacraments, all of which are designed for those who are in fact believers. One can look carefully throughout the New Testament, but look as you may. You will not find a positive example of anyone who knowingly administers anything considered to be a sacrament to those who are willfully in rebellion to God. The only positive examples demonstrating some blessing on an occasion are those sacraments given or taught about to those who are sincerely in the process of repenting or have already done so. So if a person involved in homosexuality sincerely sees their sin, repents turning away from their sin, and makes an earnest commitment by God's power to abandon what they have repented of, then they demonstrate true change and transformation as evidence of a relationship and are therefore qualified for all of God's sacraments. But if they or anyone else remain in sin and rebellion, whatever that may be, then it is their rebellion and pride which is evidence that they remain in their old nature and are thus disqualified to participate in any sacraments intended for those who are in a relationship with God. In the end, it is an issue of the heart, mind, and spirit. Either God has touched, changed, and conformed all three, or He has not. Either way, there will be evidence of their fruits. One will have some degree of change, transformation, a new nature, a desire to follow, obey, and submit to God and His Word in all things. The other will have rebellion, rationalization, and a desire to continue and justify old habits, the old nature, the lust of the flesh, a failure to obey and submit to God and His Word in one, many, or all things. The second example given was that of divorce. Now, in general, God's word is clear that His perfect will and desire is that none who are joined together as man and wife should divorce. However, it is also clear that God's word, because of sin, does give certain criteria of exceptions where divorce is permitted and there is no sin for either the man or the woman if these criteria truly exist. At this point, for this episode, we will not get into the exceptions. What is important is that God's Word, the ultimate authority, gives us these exceptions and the rules. So, let's take the example of Herod, who divorced his wife, Phaselus, and then unlawfully took Herodias, who was the wife of his brother, Herod Philip I. In this example, John the Baptist made no bones that Herod had sinned and needed to repent by sending Herodias back to his brother. Further, Herod should have sought repentance and attempted to reconcile with the Salus. If Herod had successfully, sincerely accomplished all this and repented to God, then if Herod had also sincerely become a believer who had a relationship with Jesus, then Herod would have qualified to participate in any of God's sacraments no person or church should then refuse Herod on this basis. However, if Herod attended church, gave tithes and offerings, read the Bible, prayed, and called himself a Christian, yet he continued his relationship with Herodias, or made no attempt to reconcile with Phacelus, then he would have to really question the sincerity of any supposed conversion to knowing Jesus and to thereby actually being a Christian. With such conflicting fruit and behavior, refusing Herod's participation in God's sacraments would be appropriate, necessary, and biblical. In either case, and I dare say any others, the litmus test would ultimately be to measure whatever decisions an individual believer or a church does or doesn't do against the entire counsel of the ultimate authority of truth, which is God's word in context, using prayer, discernment, wisdom, prudence, love, and faith. Man's fleshly opinions and emotions, no matter what the consensus or percentage, are not relevant. Either way, if Jesus is crucified, Jesus is crucified for the same reasons that he was crucified to begin with. Firstly, Jesus is crucified when we, like the first century suspects, Refuse or deny that Jesus is the Messiah, He is God, and consequently He is worthy of worship, obedience, and honor, not death. Second, Jesus came to die for the sins of His people. Thus, then or now, whenever we commit, Or omit doing or refraining from doing those things that God's Word commands or prohibits, we crucify Jesus. In one sense, all mankind is responsible for the necessity of Jesus volunteering to be crucified. The fact that Jesus was crucified on our behalf is something that none of us can change, it is a done deal. The critical issue is our attitude toward the historical reality of both Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. You see, for those whom God has opened their heart by his grace, they will see and acknowledge Jesus' life, crucifixion, death, and death and resurrection as a historical reality made necessary by them personally, so that they can be reconciled to God and have a living relationship by faith for all eternity. Thus, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection has meaning because of God's love for them individually forever. If, however, one remains in sin and rebellion, denying God, denying Jesus' deity, denying the life-giving truth of God's word, the Bible, denying Jesus' resurrection, then the crucifixion has no meaning other than another human historically dying. Beyond this, Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, God's word all will have no meaning for these until judgment when they serve to judge those who will attempt to claim that they did not know. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part 7. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to email me at pastor-yeshua underscore Yeshua, At Yahoo.com. That's PASTOR underscore YESHUA at Yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
1: The world falls around me, I rest and know that he has found me. Christ, the rock is my. I will trust in him I will trust in him I will trust